0: Welcome to another episode of Intelligence for Your Life, the podcast. I'm Gib Gerard, A little under the weather, if you can't tell from my voice, but uh, I have a great show for you today. Uh, John, not in the studio with me today, flying solo, but our guest today is Ravi Singh. Ravi, this is one of my favorite conversations I've ever had. Not just, I know I say that a lot, but this is not just an interview. I like the, the ideas and stuff. This is the kind of coffee table discussions that I like to have in my real life. And uh, and Robbie Robbie delivers big time. So he has done uh, so many different jobs, and we are going to talk about why he had to do so many different jobs uh, and how he pivots from one job to the other. So he started off being the lead guitarist for Hanson and we talk about how that led him to becoming a pilot to becoming a a cultural diplomat for the US State Department. I mean, it, he does all kinds of stuff over his career, but it always pivots on certain parts of his life and and we talk about why we all have to be doing that now. Why we need to be moving with uh who you know the old book who moved my cheese. That's what that's what we discuss. Where are where our cheese moves to, and how we have to constantly be moving towards it, and how to how to plan for that as we go into the future. This is was very exciting for me. Uh, I, I I can't even. It's so hard to do the intro right now because I can't distill down what we're about to talk about into into something that's so simple that I can say it in an easy sentence. I had a hard time doing the write up for this episode too. So just just trust that if you are interested in things like the future of education uh, in things like finding your passion for what you work on and how to how to build a career around things that you're passionate on uh, p- passionate about that you that you wouldn't necessarily know how to build a career on that's what uh, this conversation is about so please please enjoy my conversation with Ravi Hatti Ravi Hatti Singh you have I can't even I can't even distill your resume down into a one sentence intro we're going to get into what what that why that is in a minute. But thank you so much for being a part of our show today.
1: Oh, it's great to be here. Really looking forward to this conversation.
0: Okay, so now at this point, you are a keynote speaker on 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 education and cross culturalism. Uh, you are a cultural diplomat for the U.S. Department of State. Uh, you've founded your own schools. Uh, you you've done all of these things, but but you got a big start as and I can't, I can't as the guitarist for Hanson. <laughs>
1: Yeah. right? Go figure. I yeah, mean, exactly. How do you,
0: <laughs> first of all, kudos, big, I, I was a big fan and <laughs> anybody that says they weren't is lying because Hanson was fantastic. <laughs> I mean, I I, I still danced at Umbop. I'm just going to put that out there. If it comes on, I'm still dancing. Um, well,
1: that's good.
0: So how did you, I mean, how do you make that transition? You were born into a political family. How did you say, mom, dad, I'm going to go off and I'm going to be a I'm going to be a guitarist for a for a teen pop band.
1: Yeah, you know, it's so funny when, uh, when I look back at that trajectory and I talk about it in my keynotes, because one of the main themes that I talk about is the importance of being able to pivot in life. Mm-hmm. And that's really how you continuously reinvent yourself. And for me, it started... Well, it started even in some ways before I was born because my dad pivoted uh, from his own family. Now, I come from a political family, the uh, first family of India. My great uncle uh, was the architect of the world's largest democracy, Jawaharlal Nehru. And my father grew up in a family that was. Um, You know, very much involved and consumed with the fight for India's independence. Mm -hmm. And so his childhood was a big part of that. But then he decided that he wanted to become a businessman and he uh, pivoted himself and immigrated to the United States and became one of the first Indians on Wall Street. Now, I have two older brothers that followed in his footsteps. So you can imagine it was for me to depart from that line of what was first Politicians and then became investment bankers, was kind of uh, I don't know it was a tough thing to do because it was just very different than anything that I had known about. But when I was 11 years old, my my brothers went off to college and my parents' um, marriage started to fall apart, and I got lost. And it was in that process of getting lost that I found myself, and I found myself in the arts and in music, and. As strange as it probably was, when uh, you know all I wanted to do was be Angus Young of AC/DC, while I came from this more corporate family, um, I think in some weird ways my dad respected it because he had also made that departure from his own family. Interesting. So. He recognized that uh, I was going to chart my own course. And while he made me work hard to earn his support, I did earn his support and he gave it to me. And so, you know, when I um, I got my first guitar when I was 11 years old and, and I was able to build a recording studio in my mother's basement um, before I graduated high school and I had this business going. And I had clients coming in and out recording. I had a teaching business going on. As soon as I you know, knew how to play guitar well enough, I started teaching. And as it turned out, one of those studio clients uh, that was recording in my mother's basement, well, he got a really cool gig some years later, being the musical director for Vanessa Williams. Wow. And so he wasn't recording at my mother's basement anymore. And I mm-hmm. actually lost touch with him. But what I did do was send out a bunch of Christmas cards one year in December of 1996. And in February of 1997, somebody asked him if he knew of a young guitar player for a band they were trying to launch, an unknown band at the time, and he had just gotten a Christmas card for me. So he referred me for, for this uh, gig, and it was one gig with the band uh, at the time. You know, We didn't know it was going to become anything big, but it immediately became something big, and then uh, I was hired for the rest of the year uh, to tour with Hanson, and only it was only a few months later that... We had uh, number one hits and uh, we're outselling every other band on the planet. So that's how that whole thing happened.
0: That's incredible. What I, what I love too is that this is your. I mean, look, I, kudos to you for for charting your own path and, and and for doing that. But also, you talk about earning your dad's support. the The rebellion the rebellion of going into music involved creating a business of running your own recording studio in the process. So I have to I have to say kudos to your family for uh, ingraining in you a certain amount. Of business acumen, so that like, yeah, I'm going to be a musician, but I'm not going to be a starving artist. I am going to find a way to make it a business right away. I'm going to find like this is yeah. the quickest path to profitability.
1: No, exactly, and even he he made me write a business plan when I was a teenager, and that was probably one of the greatest lessons that anybody could have ever taught me. And to this day, it is you know giving me a foundation for being an entrepreneur and uh, constantly pivoting and building my my business.
0: Do you, do you mean so? Do you think that there's value? I hear it kind of in your voice that there's value in writing a business plan for every aspect of our life.
1: You know, yeah, yeah I think you know planning is really good, but nothing's written in stone. I mean, these plans always have mm-hmm. to be flexed. But the the act of actually sitting down and charting your course, uh, you know, I'm a pilot too. So so from a pilot perspective, I always think about how important it is to chart your course to your destination and to constantly monitor. That you are on that course and that you are going toward your destination. And you know what? If the winds change or something changes, well, then you've got to have alternate airports and you have to have another ba- plan. Right. And to me, that's the plan for life. And so, whether it's a business plan or whether it's a pilot's flight plan, uh, all of these things are tried and true methods on how to have a good plan for achieving your your goals and living your dreams and having you know a successful life by whatever measure you know you choose to to use to determine what success is Um,
0: that that's that's great advice obviously like uh the idea of needing the alternate airports is a a great metaphor but how do you how do you start to do that in in a world that also encourages people to be singularly minded and focused um because because like that that's that's the that's the that's the billionaire the billionaire founder mentality are these hyper-focused individuals who who succeed at all costs
1: yeah, I mean, I think that's partly true, but also when we really look at people like, you know, Richard Branson, for example. I mean, mm-hmm. this is a guy that has branched out in lots of different directions. This is a guy that sees an opportunity and goes for it and he's not afraid to fail. Um and, and I've always admired that and tried to have that same mentality. Uh so you know, yeah, we have in a sense um a education system and we have a society that honors that that focus and that, that tried and true. Uh, determination on a single single path. But it's also changing. I mean, you know, our education system has to get away from teaching achievement and has to teach people to fail. I mean, that's part of what I talk about in my education keynotes is we all know that failure is just the stepping stones towards success. And it's extremely important to give kids that grit and that um, perseverance in order to have the courage to fail and broaden their horizons. Because it's that broadening of horizons and spectrum of experiences that make a complete human being. And in Mm. my opinion, that that's the pathway to success. Again, however, an individual defines it. But if the more the more experiences you have in life, the more opportunities you have to combine those experiences and ultimately pivot as needed.
0: How do you know when to pivot? Because it sounds great on paper, like this idea of... Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, that's not working out. Then I, I moved to this, but how do you know when to make that change? And also how, I, it seems like you've used your previous experiences to inform your future experiences. And that's great. But a lot of people would say, okay, you were a guitar player for a pop rock group. Uh, what's, how do you pivot out of that? Like the, the, and and uh, the first thing that I heard from you, which I think is a really important one, which is never burn bridges, maintain your your contacts, and because every contact could come back and be valuable in the future, which I I think is great advice to begin with. But but how do I know when to pivot?
1: Yeah. So so to add to that advice, it really comes down to social skills. It's broader than that. You know, it's one has to be able to. Social skills are so important. One has to be able to go up to a stranger and have a conversation and be able to communicate your passion and your interests in life in a short amount of way that makes you an interesting person and also be genuinely curious enough about other people so that you can learn from them and discover your and build your network right they Mm -hmm. say your your net worth is your network so networking and and social skills are a really important part of that but so when do you know how to pivot well there's 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 at least two um, cir- set of circumstances that have always guided me on that one is when everything collapses so going back to is uh, uh, the, the obvious <laughs> one yeah <laughs> yeah that would have been 1997 in 1999 everything collapsed the record industries the entire model changed because we went to uh, peer-to-peer networks and a sharing economy when the internet uh, really started to dominate our lives at that point and the record companies didn't know how to do it and all of our our contracts were, were uh, you know, p- put on the shelf, and everything was gone. I mean, everybody that I was trying to network with and build, who I thought would make my solo career happen, they were out looking for jobs, mm. and they were even calling me and asking me if I knew anybody. So that was my first sign of, well, I got to pivot. I mean, there's no, there's nowhere for me to climb here. So what am I going to do? And that's when I got into writing for music magazines and talking about my experiences, and and that's when my public speaking began as well, because I started talking about what it was like to go from the middle of nowhere to the top of the world in the big machine music business, and then how do we do it as artists, entrepreneurs now? That's Mm -hmm. how my speaking career started. That was my first pivot. My second big pivot was in um, 2008 when the economy crashed, and I no longer had any endorsement deals. I no longer had any clients that wanted to hire me to speak. The magazine industry was going the way of the record industry, so Mm -hmm. they weren't paying me to write articles. That time I pivoted in such an extreme way and I said, you know what, I, I've already done it twice in the music industry once with the big labels, the yeah, other an independent. I'm going to try to do something completely different, follow my other passion in life and I became a pilot. That's what led me into the aviation industry. And wow. I didn't decide to do that as a profession. I decided to just do that as sort of personal growth. But what I discovered was that there was a shrinking pilot population. The, the aviation industry didn't know how to attract the millennial generation. And I had just come out of you know, a band that was the birth of the millennial generation. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of understood how that generation ticked. The other thing that I discovered at the time was uh, that millennials said that their number one priority was music. Well, I had a music background. And then the third thing I discovered at that time was that half of the pilot population plays a musical instrument. It's one That's of the wild. largest rosters. You know, the general, general population, only 8% claim that they play a musical instrument. But in aviation, it's 49.7%. So that was my way of pivoting my interest in aviation into a business. And I started keynote speaking in aviation as an aviation speaker to help uh, the aviation industry recruit the millennial generation. So that first pivot that I talked about was out of necessity because the music industry collapsed under me. Mm-hmm. This pivot was out of opportunity because I was able to connect some dots and I saw, okay, now I can actually build a business in aviation. Um, and you know that was the same story of when I gave uh, my first keynote speech in moscow and i discovered that the cultural attache for the u.s embassy in moscow was giving a speech the day before me and i decided well i might as well go there and see what he has to say right and afterwards i used my social skills to talk to him and six months later he invites me back as a cultural diplomat for the u.s department of state to start giving speeches on back to artist entrepreneurship so that's the 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 third big pivot that I made was getting into the, the global realm and actually doing something on a diplomacy basis. But here's what's interesting. If you look at all three of those pivots, one first out of necessity, the second two out of opportunity, the pivot point on which I pivoted was music in every single one of mm. those. And that's the key in terms of, of helping people learn how to pivot is you have to find your pivot point. And then you can pivot you know, through lots of different things in life.
0: Wow, so you you, you basically you find you find this thing this thing that is your passion, and then you find ways to pivot around it so that you can use that passion to inform uh, new money making opportunities or or new career opportunities. We we'll call it because it's not just about the money, but it's about finding ways to monetize your life. Essentially,
1: right? I think there's there's a few things to combine here. I mean, when you have those social skills and you talk to people, you all of a sudden start seeing opportunities mm-hmm. um, when what you're about you know which is that pivot point you find ways then to to connect your pivot point to those opportunities Mm -hmm. and to make it happen and then this goes back to what we began talking about the business plan that is nothing in stone when i wanted to be angus young of acdc there was nowhere in that business nowhere in that business plan did it say cultural diplomacy right 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 Right, right, exactly yeah
0: no it didn't
1: what (laughs) believe it or not no so you know, so that's the point is, is it's really good to have vision, but you also have to remain flexible so that you can capitalize on opportunities, but also make a change when uh, things don't go as planned.
0: And, and in it, I mean, what was your, aside from just making money, was it just the idea that, okay, here I can influence culture in a way around me that, um, that, and, and still make, and still make the music this, the, the core of it? Is that, was that the goal? I mean, like, what what was well, your motivating absolutely. factor for finding these new these new I've, things?
1: I'm doing, you know, working in, in, in for the State Department or as a client or doing anything in in public service is not for the money, right? Um, right. Because it's public money, so it's just not there. That's not the way you make money, but that is the way you make a difference, mm-hmm. and. That's really what it was for me is to have a have global experience, um, learn more about cultures myself and to use my skills and everything that that I've built to that point to try to have a positive impact on the world. And, you know, that started in Russia uh, with with the artist entrepreneurship lectures, but it right. evolved into something far more beautiful for me, which is um, creating songwriting workshops around the world that bring together people from traditionally opposed cultures and religions. And I launched that first one with the State Department in Indonesia, where I wow. had Muslims, Buddhists, and Christians writing songs together for for two weeks and falling in love with each other and building lifelong friendships. Wow! And. I mean, it's amazing. It's just absolutely amazing. And the, the next year I did it in, uh, in Iraq with Iraqis and Kurds and then in Lebanon, with Lebanese and Syrians. And right now I'm talking to you from Chile, where everything is falling apart here in this country uh, with social unrest. And I'm launching one of these programs with the indigenous and non-indigenous uh, communities to come together and write music together for two weeks uh, in February.
0: That's amazing. I mean, that's, I also think that's one of the important, the important values of the arts that's, that's been, that's been really lost uh, in, in how the the business has sort of changed around the arts. But like, in, in other words, education right now, specifically in the United States, they keep deemphasizing the arts and focusing on math and English, which I think is very important. But Music and enrichment, like you you brought up earlier, I'm connecting a few dots here, so it's going to take a second, yeah. but you brought up earlier okay. how all of these pilots are also, uh, are also musicians. Well, I believe wholeheartedly that there is an inherent understanding of mathematics that's required for music. Even if you don't realize you're doing math, you're constantly right. doing math, and, and you're translating from symbols into something else in a way that becomes... Uh, it's, it, the symbols begin to move through your body in a, when you're reading music in a way that is very similar to how piloting or driving a car or piloting a plane, you're taking in a lot of inputs and your, your brain is just finding flow and you are dynamically interpreting that input into, uh, into essentially music, which is playing the airplane, just like you would an instrument, um, and I think that there's, I think there's a lot of correlation there, and I think music is a great way of unlocking that part of the brain, and it's something that I think we're losing, particularly in Western society, uh, in 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 the eyes of of sort of utilitarian education, and and I I I'm, I'm saddened by that, but I I'm amazed that you're finding ways to use it and to use the arts to connect people to say something about society, like just the idea of. People from different backgrounds in Indonesia sitting down and writing songs together is such a beautiful way to create art together. Really does help you see from each other's perspective. That's that's the goal of art, Um, and I I really want to hear this music that's being written from these different cultural perspectives because I think it's I think in that music is um, an inherent understanding that we can all have for how to come together.
1: Well, absolutely, and you know it just comes down to empathy. I mean, the arts is the best way, right? Empathy. And if we are going to create global citizens who are culturally competent, and that's one of the big topics I talk about, is cultural competency as a pathway to equity in education. If we uh, if we create uh, culturally competent students, mm. um, then they have a much greater opportunity to not only be global citizens, but to be global leaders right. and business, whether it's business leaders or political leaders. And the pathway to that level of empathy is through the arts. There's right. there's no substitute.
0: Yeah and and, and look I, what a great what a great way to develop a shorthand early on because look the the economy is global and it that's that's not going to change so if you really want to be a leader you're going to have to deal with people from diff, diverse backgrounds that's just the reality of the world we live in whether the, whether you think that's good or not I think it's good but whether you think it's good or not that's reality and the arts is such a great uh, uh such a great method for finding the empathy required to do that like I really believe that everybody should be studying uh, and participating in artistic expression from multiple cultures at this point.
1: Well, absolutely. And so let's take it one step further. I mean, PricewaterhouseCoopers tells us that nearly 40% of jobs are going to be automated in the next 10 right. years. Right, So today, we all talk, we, we kind of identify, we self-identify and identify others with what we do. Right. But what if that changes? What are we going to identify with as a society? How do we not become disaffected? And I believe it's because we have to be connected uh, culturally mm. to, to ourselves and to each other. That's how we avoid disaffection. That's how we reduce radicalization. Um, and that's how we, we create, uh, well, let's, let's just say it. That's how we work towards world peace. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's yeah. really the bottom line. And, um, you're right. You know, it's, a, this is a global economy, but what's also so interesting about it is, you know, really going back to the sharing economy and the internet in 1999, what's happened now is we're no longer a vertical trickle up or trickle down economy. We are lateral sharing peer to peer economy. And so I often say world peace is possible if we make it profitable. Right. But what I really, true. It's you so true. It, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. But, but I think it already is profitable because we are in this lateral sharing economy. Yeah. And so that means that it's profitable for us to all get along. Um,
0: one of the things that happens when resources become scarcer is that the competition for resources begins to to rise up. So uh, the music industry has always been cutthroat. But as profits shrink, the handful of artists that are profitable become these commodities that are fought over and their catalogs are are sued over, uh, everybody becomes more litigious, which is the version of wars in in the arts uh or in that world. So how do we as as populations rise and and resources become scarce, including monetary and and, and physical resources, how do we how do we find that peace uh despite that fact? Because I'll i I'll even go one step further and I'll circle back to the question. We saw it happen with the music business where, where people were prioritizing music, but they weren't paying for it. So all of a sudden, the business model collapse, collapses. Mm. We see that happen with publishing. Like People are consuming more news now than they ever have. People are consuming more music and media than they ever have. It's just that the monetization model has shifted to the point where kind of nobody except for Disney knows how to make money off of their stuff anymore. Uh, right. And, and yet consumption is way up. Well, we're seeing the same thing happen in, in, in actual manufacturing. Consumption, consumption yep. of manufactured goods is going way up, but nobody knows how to make money manufacturing goods in, in Western countries anymore. We outsource all of it or we automate all of it. Um, it's, it's a wild thing that we're, that we're dealing with right now. Uh, how do we maintain peace as competition for resources increases?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, boy, I wish I had the answer for that, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, But uh, um, I'd I shed a little light on it by by looking at things like, you know, where are we headed? What are those jobs of the future? What are those industries of the future? And, you know, renewable energy is certainly one of them. And when you look at something like fossil fuels, right, we have to – We have to mine it and refine it. It's expensive. It's inefficient Mm -hmm. to do that. And I don't say this as taking a political platform, looking at it just from an economic point of view. Right. um, but when you look at the sun, it just keeps giving and giving and giving, and it's free for everybody to take once you have the initial investment, right, of, of right. solar panels or whatever it is that are that are coming down. So what happens? Well, that that's decentralization, and that's something that big corporations are afraid of. But once I have a solar panel on my roof, for example, I'm not dependent on a big energy company. Mm-hmm. I'm not dependent on any of those things. So those resources – um, become less scarce because people start to tap into resources mm. on a decentralized level. Um, another good example is is network neutrality. You know, if we if we are able to achieve network neutrality, the access to the internet really democratizes knowledge, yeah. and that empowers more people from regardless of socioeconomic economic um, standing, right. regardless of. of what your class classification is so you know network neutrality is another one of those major opportunities in the future that decentralizes and democratizes um some of the most important things that we have like knowledge and then you can look into even things like 3d printing where people can start printing products at home and um you know that that just changes the whole form of how we uh how we distribute things and create things so you know in economic theory all that's called uh zero marginal cost things where we're reducing our cost of manufacturing and decentralizing where that manufacturing happens and then all of a sudden you realize that we're actually not that short on on a lot of resources
0: Mm. how do we how do we make money in that future
1: well yeah that's that is a great uh um, i mean are
0: we are we all should we all vote for andrew yang because because it's the only <laughs> way to to keep the economy going
1: so we could keep getting a handout. uh um, no i mean I, I, I I i'm think- not
0: i'm not endorsing a political candidate i was being and you seem to get the joke but for the audience no, i am just saying he has the uh the, he calls it the freedom dividend which is just the universal basic exactly. income concept
1: Right. So I, I actually do believe that's a real possibility. I do believe that a UBI is actually a possibility when artificial intelligence is going to be generating uh, revenue and therefore our GDP will go up at the same time as unemployment, which right. has never we, happened. Right. Right. So, <laughs> but that's that's what we're setting up for now, and you know a lot of people find that you know, are horrified by that, but I just see this as a great opportunity because what it also does is it release, it releases a tremendous amount of human capital to do beautiful things mm-hmm. as opposed to menial jobs. Um, so just imagine that if okay, we have a UBI and people are making money and instead of going to work at jobs that they're not happy with and, and, uh, are wearing them out and doesn't give them time with their kids. If we instead have a society that has time to spend time with their kids, raising their kids and make beautiful music, uh, amongst other things, you know, might that be a a better society than a stressed one that's really struggling to make money? Um, All that becomes possible when we have this decentralization and this democratization of things. Um, Is it a good thing? Does society work well like that? You know, we don't don't really know. know. Yeah. That's why Europe, many European countries have been experimenting with UBI to see how people react, uh, and that's why I have this conversation with educated educators. That this is my keynote, because we have to prepare society uh, the, and the future leaders for this type of society, because it's very possible that that's what we'll have, and 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 I see it as a huge opportunity if we do it right.
0: Yeah, I mean that brings up. I mean that brings up another issue, which is. Uh, how do we pivot, right? Like how, how does, how does, how does an individual who, um, who defines him or herself by their, by their job title and by their accomplishments pivot to a world where, where the, where we're much less accomplishment focused and where, like you say, this sort of, this odd utopia where, where AI serves a good amount of our needs, um, our production the the overall production of society goes up but yet the need for human capital in that process goes down how do how do we define ourselves how do we make that pivot I and mean, that's that's tricky
1: and that gets right back to culture and and getting back in touch with our own culture uh, cultural competence, which means being mm. able to understand other people's culture. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, it's the question I ask my audiences all the time in my keynotes what are we educating for? What becomes the purpose of education? And it goes back to that idea of creating a peaceful world and a peaceful society. Well, I mean, what, as sort of trite or uh, as that might sound, uh, what greater mission is there in life than for us all to get along? And, yeah. yeah. And- together as a world it doesn't have to be so ethereal or so uh impractical because it actually is becoming practical
0: see and you believe it's possible because a lot of there's a lot of people but, out there naysayers who would say this is great we can all sit around and sing kumbaya together but there yeah, exactly. there, are, there are some irreducible elements of this idea of getting along
1: absolutely and one of the things i i often say uh especially around circles of friends is is I'm trying to put this. That's why I say world peace is possible if we make it profitable. It's not right. an. It's not a by uh, uh, concept. It's actually economic theory in a sharing economy, and that that's what makes me believe that that it's possible. Um, that's what makes me believe that it's possible in the sense of. Uh, from an economic and political point of view. What makes me believe it's possible from a human point of view is when I have Muslims, Christians, and Buddhists writing songs together right, for two weeks. Right. Raggis and Kurds, or Russians and Ukrainians, or you know Mapuche tribe Chileans and, and non-indigenous Chileans. When I see these people who have been fighting all the time come together through something as simple as creating a song together and building... Um, long friendships i mean friendships that exist online uh you know for through chat groups for years and then when they go to each other's countries again or to each other's parts of their countries they get together and they write songs in person when i see that i i not only do i know that people want to live in peace Mm. but that's what shows me that it's possible and it's uh it's it's really that's Again, why I focus so much on the education industry, because I believe that education is the driver of that opportunity.
0: Can you get capitalists and communists to sit down and do the same thing?
1: yeah you know i'm really trying to to be honest and and you know that's that's what's so interesting too here and that's why i'm i'm studying this whole situation in Chile because you look at what 's going on in Hong Kong right now you look at what 's going on here in Chile you look at what 's going on in Iran you look at what 's going on in lebanon right you look at what's going on in Venezuela bolivia i mean you pick it. it 's happening all over the world right now at the same time. And it's the same issues. It's the youth around the world that are rising up against inequality, against overpriced health care, against poor education. Mm-hmm. They're all fighting on, on with the same argument. What's so interesting is Hong Kong, they're fighting against a communist government in Beijing. In Chile here, they're fighting against a capitalist government. Mm-hmm. In that's that Bolivia, pure, that's that pure against-
0: capitalism. The Chile has that pure free market that is that is sort of imploding on itself right now. Discussion. Yeah. Neoliberalism. Yeah. It's
1: neoliberalism. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. And it's, and, and I just wrote a blog, uh, you know, um, on my website, I write a blog, uh, every month. Um, and the one that came out two days ago, I wrote from here is capitalism failing. Uh, you know, because we always talk about how socialism has failed and the many reasons why it has multitude of reasons why it has, but can capitalism fail as well? And I think I'm witnessing it here. Yeah. Um, So, so I think it is. And, and, and if, if, if we know that, that this is the youth rising up on these issues and the rising up against capitalist neoliberal governments and the rising up against communist governments, yes, I think capitalists and communists can eventually get along because the problems are the same and we all have to come together to create some sort of, um, peace amongst different generations and different cultures.
0: Well, I mean, g- capitalism also will fail when, when, when we get to that area that we were talking about before, where uh, it begins to eat its own tail, where it's producing goods and services for an economy, and, and it's optimizing, the firm is optimizing itself by not paying its workers enough to actually consume the goods and services generated by the economy. Um, right, exactly. And, and so that's where, where capitalism begins to eat, eat its own tail and, and, and collapses on itself. Um, capitalism, I'm, I'm, I... go ahead.
1: No, I was just going to say I call it a false middle class. You know, right. capitalism brought a lot of poverty, uh, people out of poverty and into middle class. But that middle class is carrying the heaviest debt load of mm-hmm. of any um, segment of society. And that's what that's what collapsed in 2008 uh, in the mortgage crisis. That's what's going to collapse now through student loans and education debt mm-hmm. uh, and healthcare costs. And it is that middle class that. That. Um, isn't really. I mean, I don't know how we can call it an economically sound middle class if uh, if predatory lending has put them in such a situation where they have so much debt.
0: Right, right. It's a it's a, it's a good point, and that's why. Like, I've seen economic theory tra- change from a purely cent- like there were two worlds of thought where there was like purely centrally planned and purely free market, and now it seems like the prevailing wisdom is. That there is some middle point where where the economy is optimized, some some sort of curve where uh, where it's it's not purely centrally planned, but it's also not allowing capitalism to be the only moral argument.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think you know, I mean, I, I, I you know, capitalism has served me well. I mean, that's how I built right. my business, right. and I believe in the fundamentals of capitalism for sure. I don't believe in neoliberalism. I believe in um, the socially responsible components of socialism, but I don't believe necessarily in, um, you know, other aspects of socialism right, right, right. Or, or certainly that, that would lead to an extreme of, of communism and, and, you know, the vulnerabilities of that. So, you know, I I think uh, that there's something else altogether that we ought to be focusing right. on, and it comes back down to the idea of a decentralized sharing economy,
0: mm-hmm. which is
1: Rooted in, in in capitalism more than anything else, but organically has a socially responsible component to it.
0: Right, I think we kind of agree on on a certain element. Like, I, I, I'm often I often say when having this having these discussions that capitalism is like, ca- capitalism exists whether we like it or not, or whether we are in a purely unplanned, uh, unregulated economy, or if you're in a fully regulated economy, like you see it. You saw it in the in the '80s during the Cold War with the price of Levi's among people behind the Iron Curtain, right? There was yep. a market for certain goods and services that existed, whether the economy, whether that centrally planned economy accepted it or not, um, and <laughs> and capitalism had these little footholds so it exists whether we like it or not it's just as a society do we decide that we need to motivate the market to an equilibrium point that serves more people than just the firms that are operating in that in that marketplace right uh,
1: exactly and, and uh, I think if we're going to create a sustainable economy as our population grows and as um, you know country Asian countries especially start to dominate I mean, look at India that has half a billion at or below the poverty level right. depending on what number- a significant amount, right. um, and I would do a lot of work over there with, with the impoverished. Um, it's uh, it's a significant that that is a significant tax on the global society that we are going to have to pay one way or the other.
0: Oh, we have gotten so far afield, and I've loved every second of it. But we've gotten so far afield. <laughs> I want to ask you a question that I think will, that will help recenter us because what I'm hearing from you and what I believe too as well is that that the pivot is the new normal. It's, uh, you know, no longer are we getting a job for Ma Bell working for 40 to 50 years and retiring with a gold watch and a golden parachute pension. That just doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and it probably, and, it, and that the, the uh, churn rate of jobs and career concepts uh, is just, the churn rate's just increasing. They, jobs, are, jobs are disappearing and, recre- and recreating and remolding faster than they ever have been. And I think that that, that pace is just gonna increase my question i guess is your pivots make so much sense in hindsight they're almost like when you when you describe them you're like wow that's in, that's incredibly creative of you but also a foregone conclusion like that makes sense why do so many of us and how do we start to make it easier struggle with being able to pivot ourselves like why are we why do we not throw why why can't we pivot
1: Right. So this is this is my, my I'm writing a book right now. It'll come out next year. It's called Pivot. And it's just about this concept that you're asking. So I appreciate that. Um, but, you know, yes, my my trajectory makes so much sense, but only in hindsight. I mean, if I had told right. my father that- the business plan, he would have said, you're crazy. Uh, this doesn't make any sense. And, and I'm going to be um, a guitarist
0: for the biggest band in the world, <laughs> and then I'm going to start giving keynote speeches about the importance of music and cultural, and, and then I'm going to become a pilot. And they're
1: like, okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sound but like an eight-year-old
0: it's, it's, drawing on his uh, <laughs> uh, on his notebook.
1: So, it's so true. That's it, exactly what it's like. It wouldn't make any sense. Yeah. But it makes a lot of sense when you reverse engineer it because you can see um, though you can see the pivot points that that's really the, the, the thing is those pivot points. Mm. So, you know, yes, I, I agree with everything that you just said, people are going to have to pivot. This is the future. We are moving into somewhat of a, you know, gig economy, uh, style of, of careers as opposed yeah. to working company for 30 years with a pension there. Mm-hmm. But you know, there are other things that to consider, which is, you know, the, uh, the director of the Harvard lab on of the lab on aging at Harvard medical school says that the first person to live to 150 has already been born. Wow. Now, if we look at it that way, I mean, think of how many different careers you're going to want to have, maybe different industries you're going to want to have, mm-hmm. maybe multiple marriages. I mean, you know, as life getting longer and longer, you know, who knows how many, um, how many different things, uh, one will want to take on throughout the course of a lifetime. And again, in my keynote, so, you know, I talked to educators, you know, how are we going to educate someone in 12 years or 16 years, 18 years, 20 years for 100 years of productivity, right. in 150 years?
0: Yeah. How did Methuselah yeah. do it?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, and the way to do it, and, and this goes right back to the point of pivoting, the way to do it is to only focus on teaching students basically one thing, which is how to be a lifelong learner because they're right. going to have to teach themselves right. through the rest of their lives. And if they do that, they can constantly pivot. Um, and, and, and that's the key lifelong learning. Yeah. Uh, the, the job of school is, is it's not to, it's not to disseminate knowledge because the knowledge is in the palm of our hands and our cell phones. Right, It's to make kids curious enough, give them the data triangulation, critical thinking skills enough to evaluate what they discover and, um, and the confidence to go out there and apply it.
0: That is amazing true and so much harder than making people memorize state capitals you know what i mean (laughs) like how do you how uh, do you write a curriculum for hey uh, we want to make sure that every student that goes through our school system of you know 50 million kids uh walks out and go and is able to have a passion and an ability to learn for themselves and think critically for the rest of their lives
1: Right. So the the keys to the to that are number one, we have to get away from standardized testing, absolutely, uh, and maybe even to some degree grading and summative assessments, which is basically grading, and move into um, you know much more formative style of assessing student progress, teaching failure. Uh, go back to that, you so know, model we can based, encourage-
0: project based learning yeah. instead of
1: project based learning. Yeah. And, um, and the, and the cultural competence piece, you know, another thing I do, we did talk about is I have a network of 150 international schools. It's called Ravi United schools. And what I do with these schools is I create these 45 minute online student interactions with one classroom in one country and another classroom in another country. And I just host an interaction and basically facilitate a conversation that is based on the questions that the students want to ask each other. And that type of peer to peer learning on a global level Mm -hmm. is really, really powerful and I have teachers tell me all the time afterwards, you know, my kids learn more in that 45 minutes than they've learned in a month in my classroom. Right. It's the kind of it, learning know, that we need, we the kind of learning that we're going to need, too. Exactly, because they're learning from each other, and it's self-directed learning. You know, we talk about things like personalized learning and stuff like that, but the key to all of it is self-directed learning because uh, they, they have to be lifelong learners. Mm-hmm. So we just have to teach them to, to educate themselves yeah. throughout life.
0: I mean, easier said than done, uh, you know, but <laughs> yes, but like, uh, but, but the, you're right. Because, that's, that's the only future.
1: Yeah. And, you know, uh, yes, it's easier said than done. But if we do change our measurement systems and we change our our standardized testing and our, our especially in the United States, you know, an absolute love for testing, which we have to kind of really have to get away from because that teaches achievement, doesn't teach failure. And we really give students a much bigger opportunity to do these project-based learning. Um, It's pretty organic, you know, Mm -hmm. it actually really is. And and teachers have to stop thinking of themselves traditionally as teachers and start thinking of themselves as coaches or facilitators Mm. Uh, because then, because the students will do the work and they'll stay curious and they will, um, you know, if it's self-directed, they will discover how they can teach themselves for the rest of their lives
0: Uh, and that's and that's ultimately what we need our guest today Ravi Huttising you are a an international education speaker and cross-cultural catalyst you can follow up if you have a business and you want Ravi to have this kind of conversation with your people uh, Raviunites.com is a place to get started Ravi where else can people follow up with you
1: Anywhere on um, social media, uh, my handle on everything is at Ravi Unites. Um, but otherwise, through the website is the best way, and I've got my blog there, so they can keep in, they can sign up right there and keep in touch with me. Uh, and they can email me directly through the website too. And I'm uh, I spend a lot of time on airplanes, and a lot of that time I spend answering emails, so I'm happy to do it.
0: Links to all of his social media accounts in the show notes, as well as a link to the website. And again. This is the kind of discussion that every organization needs to be having. So whether you own a uh, regional dry cleaner or a multinational corporation, uh, go ahead and and click that link and get Ravi to come in and talk to you. One last thing, and I ask it to everybody, Ravi, what is one thing we can all start doing today to make our lives a whole lot better?
1: I think uh, kindness. You know, just one kind action towards somebody else. That really does begin to change the world and change the way that we see each other. Uh, and to really start bridging those generational and cross-cultural things. And I would say kindness that does bridge a generation. A kid Mm. should go up and talk to an adult, an adult should go up and talk to a kid, Um, and uh, also talk to somebody that looks different than you. Mm. It's all about conversation and and crossing those perceived barriers to realize that we all have more in common than we have differences. So just go up and talk to somebody that you wouldn't normally do.
0: There you have it. Robbie, thank you so much for your time today, and I hope you'll come back when you uh, when you release your book.
1: I appreciate it, Gib. Thanks so much. Well, that's
0: it for our show today. I hope you enjoyed our conversation as much as I did. If you really like the show, please rate, comment, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us out a lot. Also, if you like this episode, please share it with a friend that you think would enjoy it. It makes a huge difference for us in our bottom line. Uh, if you want to follow up with us, Facebook.com slash John Tesh is where we spend most of our most of our time. John is also on Twitter, at John Tesh, on Instagram, at John Tesh underscore IFYL. I am Gib Gerard. You can find me at Facebook.com slash Gib Gerard, or uh, at Gib Gerard on Instagram and Twitter. Our show today was written and produced by me, Gib Gerard. produced by Chrissy Wallen, who does all of our booking of our guests. She's amazing. Chrissy, thank you. Executive producer is John Tesh. And uh, Most importantly, guys, we do this for you. So if you have any comments, go to our social media. Let us know. Let us know what you like, what you don't like. DM me, let me know if there's, uh, if there's a guest that we haven't had on that you want to hear us that you want to hear us do. I will try to book them. I'll get Chrissy to try to book them actually. I, I won't do a lot of work, but she will. So if any of that it sounds good to you, please let us know. Uh, and, and most of all guys, uh, we couldn't do this without you. so
1: thank you so much for listening.